1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode number 10 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. If I told you a lawyer was building their practice exponentially through social media, what's the first kind of lawyer that pops into your mind? Maybe a personal injury attorney on TikTok? Maybe an immigration attorney on YouTube? Well, what about a business-to-business attorney? A business-to-business attorney that focuses on contracts, of all things. Well, my guest on this episode, Laura Frederick, did just that. She started with a LinkedIn 30-day challenge back in August 2020, and those 30 days became more than 600 days of her posting on LinkedIn every day. She went from 1,300 followers on LinkedIn to over 27,000 followers. That's a 20x increase in her followers. But even more impressive is that once she started getting rolling on LinkedIn, she was getting three to four new clients a month. And she's a business-to-business attorney. Those numbers are what you'd expect for a direct-to-consumer practice, like personal injury, immigration, or criminal defense. In this episode, Laura and I discuss how she transitioned from over 14 years in-house to building her own law firm. We talk about her 30-day LinkedIn strategy and how she took that strategy and built her law firm. We talk about how she launched her productized service and why she thinks any lawyer can do so. If you're skeptical about whether a business-to-business lawyer can build their practice through social media, particularly LinkedIn, I think this episode is going to change your mind. Enjoy my conversation with Laura Frederick. Laura Frederick, welcome to Legally Contented. Please introduce yourself and tell us all how you came to be where you are today. Sure. So I am the, uh, I own a law firm called Laura Frederick Law, which helps uh, businesses with their vendor contracts and other commercial transactions. I'm also the founder of How to Contract. It's a training platform that helps lawyers and professionals learn practical contract drafting and negotiating skills. Laura, I'm so happy that you are joining me today. I wanted to talk with you about a couple things that I find so interesting. One is your long kind of in-house counsel career that started after you left Morrison Forster and was before you made the entrepreneurial jump to your your own firm. So I want to hear more about that. But really, you have done a bang up job on LinkedIn. You have gone all in on LinkedIn, if you will. And I've gotten the impression that it has changed your law firm. It has changed your world based on you showing up on LinkedIn and providing your knowledge. And then if that wasn't enough for one person over the course of a career, you now have how to contract, which some people would call it an information product, but I would call it content as a service in that you are being able, you are able to help people at scale as a lawyer. You provide knowledge, provide wisdom, 
in the form of content, but your clients don't need to have your their hands held. You're not on the phone all hours of the day. You've provided a product to help them get through the legal issues they're facing with their contract. So I want to kind of go in, in that order. Talk to me a little bit about you going from a, a large, prominent, a prestigious law firm to in-house and then from in-house positions to your own firm. Tell me about your, your thought decisions there and, and why you made the jump once to in-house and then second time from in-house to your own firm. Sure. So, you know, I loved practicing. I'm a, I, most of my career, I was a tech transaction lawyer for the first 10 years and enjoyed it so much. I loved working at Morrison and Forrester, just really surrounded by great people doing really interesting work. And, but I, at that point, I was, I had little kids. So I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old and I was pregnant again. So it just doesn't, wasn't going to work unless I went part-time and I didn't have that uh, kind of financial uh, family situation that I could do that. So I decided I needed to get a job that had a more limited schedule. And I was in San Francisco working at the time and traditionally San Francisco law firm attorneys would go look at the local Bay Area tech companies. But I knew if I did that, it would be the same kind of schedule. So instead, I looked for a, a true bricks and mortar kind of place where I could punch in at nine and punch out at five, never work a night or weekend. And I found a position at a uh, diversified energy company with utilities and you know nuclear power plants and the whole uh, traditional um, kind of industrial business and went in-house there uh, as a supply chain lawyer. And, and it came true for about two years. I never worked a weekend, never worked a night. It was beautiful. You, you found the mythical work-life balance that we all hear, <laughs> we all hear so much about. But of course, I had to take about a 50% cut in pay uh, to get it. But, you know, as I when I looked at the numbers after I took the job and the 50% cut in pay, my act my after uh, bills cash flow and the amount of money I had to spend each month ended up being about the same because I was wow. no longer in San Francisco apartments paying San Francisco daycare, paying San Francisco grocery bills. Uh, so I was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and everything was about 50% cheaper. So, you know, for those who are thinking of doing that leap and, and afraid of that pay cut, if you're moving out of those major metropolitan areas, it really, uh, it's not as scary as it seems. So then I kept working. Um, I worked there for a while. I worked, then I'm, um, it was in the energy industry and I learned all about commercial contracts in energy companies and then ended up moving into renewable energy at other companies, ended up at Solar City and then at Tesla. And I had reached a point in my career where I wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted. It, I, my last in-house job was Tesla, which was really my favorite in-house job of my career. It just working with amazing people doing meaningful work. I handled the international, uh, well, national and international uh, environmental commodity credits like greenhouse gas credits and zero emission vehicle credits. It was so interesting and so fun. And I worked with great people, but I wasn't feeling fulfilled and I thought, well, if this job doesn't fulfill me, you know, there's then there's some disconnect right now. And I tried to look for other jobs and they didn't look that interesting either. 
And I realized I spent a lot of time kind of uh, soul searching and realized I needed something completely different. And so I invested in more time to figure out what it was that I wanted. And I came up to the word freedom. And that's what I wanted was freedom from, you know, being on somebody's calendar, freedom from having to work and be available all the time. So I moved to my own law firm. And that was really what led me to do it. I didn't have any clients to start. I just left, uh, you know, with a hope and a prayer and about eight months of savings in the bank and said, well, if I hit six months and I'm not making enough money, I can just go find another job. I'm very curious. I've never been part of an in-house group of, of lawyers when there's been an acquisition. I've never been part of an in-house group of lawyers, period. Uh, when Solar City was acquired by Tesla, did you have an opportunity to go into a different practice within Tesla, or did you just keep on doing what you were doing at Solar City, but now with a Tesla business card and a Tesla email address? And then the initial move was what I was doing at Solar City. So at Solar City, I handled the uh, supply chain relating to the equipment, services, and everything else for Solar City. And so when I first moved to Tesla, I supported the kind of the solar energy business uh, supply chain. And but within about two or three months of joining, the person who had been handling all the environmental commodity work left, and it was in my group. And when my boss mentioned him leaving, I raised my hand and said, well, I did environmental commodities at that energy company and built programs around renewable energy credits. So I know the subject very well. And so I took over that work. And eventually the supply chain work went to other people because the environmental commodity work was became my full-time job. So not to spoil what happens next, but I'm curious, when you left to go out on your own, could you have continued doing this kind the kind of work you were doing at Solar City and eventually Tesla? Could you have done that in private practice for companies, or was that going to be something that they would have always done in-house? I could have done it in, in private practice. There's a lot of uh, lawyers who support companies with their commercial contracts, and they typically come into two buckets. One is the day-to-day -day contracts and law and companies that need overflow. And those tend to be lower priced, high volume. And then there's companies that need that extra support for the really large transactions because the in-house teams are so busy, they don't have the time that's really needed to do those large transactions. And so many companies hire boutique firms like mine to really jump in and pitch in on those things. What made you decide to go into a contract practice upon leaving Tesla and, and launching your own firm? Obviously, you had decades of in-house experience. You had a lot of different areas of law that you could have practiced if you kind of did the Venn diagram of what you enjoyed, where you think there's going to be demand, and what you're good at, that, that kind of three-circle overlap, you're going to find what I would think your practice area would be. But what made you settle on contracts? Actually, I've loved contracts my whole career. That's been, if there's one theme, it's been working on commercial contracts in particular. I never really did any corporate contracts, employment contracts, any other kind. It was always commercial contracts and tech transactions. And yeah, so I, at one point in my career, I considered trying to, a couple of years into being in-house, I had my mindset on being a general counsel. Um, it's natural progression for a lot of lawyers, and I thought that's what I was supposed to want. 
And then I started looking at the job descriptions and I was seeing, well, I'm really excited about doing all this contract stuff they have, but I don't want to do the employment, the compliance, the all the other things that uh, general counsels have to do. So at, at about after being in house for a few years, I realized I had no interest in me ever being a general counsel. Just leave me in the corner with my contracts, negotiating, drafting all day, working with my business teams, and I'm happy. So it was a natural progression when I went outside that, you know, you, I got to do the work I wanted because I was my own boss. So I no longer had to do kinds of works that I didn't want to do. And so there's no other work I enjoy more than commercial contracts. I think there's nothing more liberating. You talked about freedom before, and I I am totally with you about searching for freedom in your life in whatever different ways you can find it. And certainly if you can earn a living and and feed your family and have enjoyable life because you can also work within your own freedom, that's fantastic. Um, I'm curious though, when we're talking about freedom, you go and you launch your firm. And at first, I'd have to imagine that you are doing everything. You are you are touching every aspect of the business. And I'm curious, how did you go about the marketing and the business development efforts when you first started? Because I always think it's funny when you read about a big law or a boutique law firm partner leaving to start their own firm or leaving to join another firm and they take their $3 million book of business or they took their, their $5 million book of business or if on the personal injury side or the direct-to-consumer side, they were running their firm's marketing, they know what to do for Facebook ads or Google ads. It seems a hell of a lot easier if you have the money printing machine already in place and you mm-hmm. just move it from the larger firm to your new firm with your new letterhead and your email address. But it sounds like you weren't in a position to do that. One, you were in-house. And two, as you mentioned before, you started it brand new from the ground with with no clients. So I'm curious, what were those early days like in terms of marketing and BD? What were you doing once you understood that you were going to focus on contracts? Where to from there in terms of marketing and business development? Well, so what I relied on, and I think the asset that in-house people have is the contacts. So I had a strong network of coworkers uh, who I had worked with over the years, especially as a commercial lawyer working with supply chain. I get to know everybody in the company. And so over those 14 years in-house, and, and as well as the years I was in law firms, I built my network of people who knew me and knew the quality of my work. And so as soon as I went out, my first client was, you know, somebody I had known through a professional organization who knew somebody who needed some help. And then soon after that, it was a former coworker who had seen my post uh, about my new firm and co- referred this client to me. So the beauty is when you start out with your own firm and you're working from home and you have your laptop and not a lot of other overhead, you don't need to work that much to get the same kind of income. So in the beginning, I'll tell you for about a year and a half, I did zero work, business development, marketing, any of that. I relied 100% on referrals uh, from coworkers and then, then from my clients, they would refer other people. So I was fully engaged, very busy for 18 months, just based on, you know, word of mouth. That's so great. And also a lesson for all of us who aren't always building our networks. I, I remember finally at, at Decker and I'm sure at Marshall Foster and really any large firm or these days, maybe any law firm, when you're an associate, your head is 
normally down and in and you are in the weeds billing your hours or doing the client work it is very hard to see big picture about what your career might be like 5 10 15 years down the road when you know that you've got 1950 hours to bill and if you hit that number especially in these days you were looking at 15 20 40 100k worth of a bonus that's serious money if you've got student loan debt you're looking to buy a house you're doing whatever so it, it's so frustrating for younger attorneys and even younger partners where they know everyone says build your network. They know they have to do that, yet the reality of a day-to-day -day lawyer's life is that, gee, if I'm spending 2,100 hours, 2,400 hours billing time, well, maybe hours 2,401 through 2,600 are what I'm going to spend networking. So I think your story is a great reminder that networking counts. Yeah. And I would say the the biggest thing, because I was one of those associates, I had my head down, I did zero business development, I never brought in a client in my 10 years of working in a law firm. And then, or, you know, before I went in house. And then when I did have to open my own law firm, I had no idea about any of that. The best advice I ever got about networking, because it's not a natural thing for me, and I think for a lot of people, was go make friends. Don't think of networking as some, I got to go get a business card and I got to go show value and I got to, you know, there's all the, you know, experts talk about what you should be doing for networking. And it was intimidating and it made me not even want to do it because it felt so complicated and I didn't know how to do it and I wasn't good at it. But later somebody just said, go make friends, make friends in your professional circles, make friends at work and not necessarily your best friend that you go out and gossip with about your lives, but business friends that you talk to once in a while that you invite to an event to go with you or you, you know, you see something cool and you tell them or grab lunch together. If you focus more on the professional friendships as opposed to uh, networking, I think that makes it a lot easier even for busy lawyers. Well, that's great. And it certainly takes some of the pain out of it because you're right. I think most people do not want to show up at a bar association meeting, assuming that's the right place for you, which it might not be based on your practice, or an industry event and walk into a cocktail hour or a room when everything is back to normal, uh, in person, and just look at that huge crowd and go, oh goodness, I gotta do yeah. what? They just wanna turn around and leave or they grab a drink and they stand in the corner. And, I, and I, it's almost like gamifying it where it's like, okay, how can I build relationships with people who I actually want to talk to, who I like to have occasional Zoom catch-ups with or I'll grab coffee or lunch with and start that way. And then when you find people that you enjoy spending time with and then they refer you out and now your second level contacts are the people who might not be people you're familiar with at first, but those are more people to grab exactly. coffee with, more people to have lunch with. And I also found the better activities because I was always stuck. I'd go to the what I was supposed to do. I always felt like I was supposed to go to those events and supposed to do things. And once what I did find over my looking back in these 26 years of practice, when I did something with those contacts, that's what solidified it. So that it's not sitting and shaking hands and getting a business card. That's honestly worthless. That's just an introduction to somebody. The key is after you do that, approach somebody, hey, how, do you want to do an article together? Hey, do you want to go put in a speaker application for this conference together? Or let's go to lunch or do or come to my firm's having this thing. Do you want to come? I think the more you can do where, again, just like with friends, when you meet new friends, you don't just meet them and, and go away until you need them later to loan you $1,000. You 
create small incremental um, improvements and, and ties with your uh, professional colleagues. One thing I've heard professional services firms that are freshly from uh, freshly built by their proprietors is that after a year, 18 months, there's going to be a, a lull where all of the people who had these pent up referrals to send you business, they've referred you business. And that first round of referrals, that first round of new clients and, and hopefully thus revenues has passed. After those first 18 months, which you mentioned that number specifically, 18 months, what happened next at your firm in terms of your marketing and BD? Did you have a stream of, of referrals after those 18 months or, or did you have to start, I guess, really being more proactive with your marketing and your BD? Yeah, so I had a big project about a year in, I got a big project and had to bring in three other lawyers to work on this huge project with me. And then it started to wind down about six months later. and. At that point, I was thinking, you know, I, I think I'm ready to scale. I had really focused up to that point. You know, this project kind of came upon me. I had focused just on myself, a solo practitioner. I was focused on uh, my specialty and niche was renewable energy related equipment purchases and sales. I and warranty claims and operations. I was one of, I would argue or assert, I was one of the leading lawyers on that space because I'd done so much of it um, for years. And, but there's a very niche need for that. It's not widely needed to negotiate large, you know, 50 million contracts to buy solar modules. That's not uh, something everybody needs, but everybody has vendor contracts. So I, as I thought about how to expand my firm, I decided to brought, to kind of shift my focus. Prior to that, my focus was on renewable energy companies and doing vendor contracts, all contracts for, for renewable energy, particularly solar energy. And I decided if I was going to grow my firm, I needed to broaden that base. So I, I decided to go to vendor contracts. And I said, well, nobody really knows me because all my, my uh, referrals were all from people I'd worked with or people that they knew. And I thought, if I'm going to try and expand my firm, if I'm going to try and grow, I need to get my name out. And at that point, I'd rarely posted on LinkedIn. I'd never written anything public about anything, never did uh, a webinar other than, you know, or a uh, CLE other than one for my local bar association that had 20 people show up. So I just wasn't um, focused on creating a name for myself. And about then, I saw a post that said, you know, they'd it was a challenge to post for 30 days straight on LinkedIn. And I thought, you know, I know I've heard over and over, uh, you know, show me, uh, don't tell me that you're an expert. So I said, okay, well, the 30 day challenge, if I talk about contracts for 30 days and I show people how smart I am and how skilled I am and knowledgeable I am about these issues, then people will see that I know what I'm talking about and they'll want to hire me. So that was kind of how the LinkedIn started. So I started, I had 1,300 followers at that point, again, very little connection other than my former friends and colleagues, um, or former colleagues and my friends. So that was kind of how, as I was looking to build my law firm, that's where I started. I focused in on using LinkedIn. Okay. So tell us, let's, don't leave us hanging here. You started your 30-day challenge. And what happened during those 30 days? It was 
amazing. I mean, it really took off because I thought people would be bored. You know, I'm talking about how to draft a limited liability provision or the parts of a copyright license or whatever it is, or how to negotiate it when you have a jerk on the other side. And what I found was people were really engaged and I started getting comments and I, I took the approach. I always replied to every single comment, no matter what it said, because in my mind, if they were kind enough to come over to my post and engage, the least I could do was reply. And so that was my practice. So over, over those 30 days, I saw more and more people coming to engage, coming to talk in this conversation we were having about that contract tip. And typically the tip that I wrote, especially back then, we were more limited in characters. It was 1300 characters. So I could only write so much. And then all the rest of the, the issues that go beyond those 1300 characters would come out in the comments. So I would get, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't as many, it grew over time, but, you know, sometimes I'll have 100, 150 comments with a lot of discussion going back and forth on substantive contract issues uh, with the posts. So put a pin in this. When was this 30-day challenge? It started August 3rd. Uh, so I, I haven't done the math lately. I'm somewhere around 550, 600 days later, and I've I've posted every single day since. Okay, so that, that takes us back. We're doing some math on the fly here. So is that August of 2020? August 2020. It was right in the middle of the pandemic when we were all stuck home. Um, some of it, too, was because of the pandemic. I'm a mom of four uh, boys. Uh, they were teenagers. So before that, I had been, you know, mom taxi, driving them everywhere all the time. And when they were home with the pandemic, I had all this extra time that I hadn't had before. So I would spend, you know, an hour, two hours a day engaging on LinkedIn because it was also a, a social fix for me. I didn't, it helped me not feel so isolated because I had all my friends that I chatted with all day on LinkedIn. Where did you draw inspiration for the topics you covered during this three-day challenge? Were these things that you had listed on a notepad or in your phone and they were like blog topics that you would get to at a certain point but you never did where did you get the inspiration for these topics a lot of it some of them were from um you know my day-to-day -day practice that i'd have an issue that let's say um you know in the u.s title to goods can't transfer after delivery. It's just not allowed. And every once in a while, I'd have somebody on the other side who argues that that's not true. And so I, it was almost like I had a chance to explain to the world what I considered to be the right approach to drafting and negotiating these things. Although I will say very rarely, I'm not in the school that believes there's only one way to draft things. I believe there are a million, not a million, many different ways to draft an indemnity clause, many different ways to draft an assignment clause. And most of them are great. It, you don't have to have this particular word in most cases. You just have to make sure you're doing the bigger picture correctly, making sure you hit all the important points, and then being aware of which words help and hurt. Uh, so I focused on conceptually what, you know, there's a delta of knowledge between what a third year lawyer knows and what I know. And so my focus was emptying my brain 
with all that wisdom that I gained over those 26 years of practice and sharing with, with that third year who hasn't yet had those life experiences that I had. So whenever I would come across an issue in my work, either let's say I was writing the comments to the other side on a draft of a contract, I'd save that on a list. Uh, I actually had Hootsuite for a long time and I'd just create a draft post and then I'd leave it. And then if I ever uh, ran out of content, that was my list of topics. But most days I'll say, you know, and even now I have another 500 or so topics ready to be written on that I just have to get to uh, because there's so much complexity to doing commercial contracts, uh, especially when you talk about, you know, intellectual property, cross-border, compliance elements, you know, and then the mix of kind of the job skills of being an in-house lawyer and negotiating or even in law firms and how you negotiate. There's no information out there. So what I was trying to do is even the little stuff that might seem obvious to people who have been doing it a long time, I was trying to capture, almost like create this uh, textbook on the job tasks and approaches to do the job that we do when we work with commercial contracts. It's almost counterintuitive that someone who specializes in contracts would have hundreds and hundreds of draft posts that she hasn't even gotten to, even past the multiple hundreds of days that she's posted consecutively on LinkedIn. Why is it, do you think, that in niche practices, we as we as lawyers, we as professional service providers, whatever, niche professionals tend to actually have more to write about than less when they're focused on a niche? Why do you think that is? I think it's because we're diving really deep. You know, I'm going, I'm not just talking about law generally across a company. I'm not talking about compliance issues or others, but I'm just talking about contracts. But if you look, it's almost like developing a detailed outline for a law school class. So if you did an outline for contracts class, it would have these 12 headings. But then with each subheading, you'd have all these other things. And so if you're only talking about the academic side, like what does case law tell us about drafting these words? That is in a set, in a way more limited than what I'm doing. What I'm doing is taking that the next step further that, okay, case law says use this kind of wording, but what happens when your counterparty disagrees? what variations of that are okay. And when you're a buyer and you're in a low risk situation and it's an off the shelf product and blah, 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 you know, so I'm trying to help people really understand the decision making. And I think that allows for a lot more um, interesting and engaging conversation than just case law says X. With the fact that you were diving into the, the weeds and getting into this fun nitty gritty of contracts, did that require a lot of time every day when you were writing your posts? And did you just do text posts or were you doing graphics or videos to complement the text? Yeah, I started with just text posts uh, because I just, you know, couldn't deal with anything more than that. And, and honestly, it wasn't I didn't see it as that big of a deal for me. It was just, oh, I'm going to post on LinkedIn and maybe some people see it and they'll want to hire me. It, I don't. I didn't put that much thought into it. There was no master plan, no ROI, whatever. And so in the beginning, it was just uh, text. And then a marketing person I knew convinced me, you, you got to add pictures. 
and images. And so I started adding these crappy like stock photo images. Like I'd be talking about some goods thing and I'd put a picture of a warehouse. Like, you know, it was terrible, <laughs> but it was something. And I started to see how, you know, it wasn't me, these stock photos. It was kind of boring and I'm not, I'm, I'm naturally a silly person. So I was like, okay. So then I eventually moved to after, I guess about four months in, I start or three months in, I started doing cartoon figures, just stick figures on a green background. Um, and I had adopted green and gray and black as my brand colors. So for, for my kind of contract side of my world or training side of my world. And so then slowly, and I thought that was great, but I'd still do like charts and provisions. I did other things too. And then I started getting more creative with my little scenes and my cartoons. And soon they started having more dynamic uh, scenes set up. But, and then eventually I added, started adding dialogue. And each of my cartoons now that I produce and have one from each tip every day is a dynamic scene with some, you know, sarcastic or silly thing going on, whether it's the dog saying, I'll use commercially reasonable efforts not to chase the cat or some other, you know, silliness or the guy who's who's going out of business because he has an intangible uh, property storage business. So I'm trying to take that play on kind of the nerdy lawyer inside jokes, uh, which lawyers don't think of that like contract jokes, like really. So, but it's my goal is to kind of it the theme of the cartoon always matches the theme of the post and they reinforce concepts kind of in an extreme way. Are you, I want to come back to that for a moment. Are you drawing these cartoons yourself? Well, I create them in Canva myself. I've always done a hundred percent of them and I've tried a couple times to have people make them for me, but part of the reason they're so effective and I think they resonate with everyone is because I'm a sophisticated capable lawyer and I'm, you know, putting myself into this cartoon and I can use the terminology that I've heard over my years. I can look at it and frame it in a way that a regular person wouldn't necessarily know to do. So I love this. And to me, this is analogous to jargon, but using the right kind of jargon. And I, I wrote about this and I'll put that in the show notes, but you often hear people marketing professionals say, don't use jargon in your articles, in your blog posts. And I would say, well, wait, don't use legal jargon, but you should definitely use the jargon that your audience uses because it is a way to tell them, hey, look, I could talk to you about the law, but I'm using the language you use every day. I know about your business. And that arguably is, is more important than purely knowing the law. I know what you need from a business perspective when it comes to your legal issues and your legal guidance. But what you're doing with humor is just the same thing. It is like inside jokes that mm -hmm. only people who care very deeply about contracts because they read them every day as part of their profession, that creates a bond 
And again, it looks stupid to the person who doesn't understand. Oh, there she is. There's Laura. She's putting these funny looking comic strips. Like how big of a deal could they be? Ha ha ha. But, but it's genius because you're connecting on a deeper level with the people that you want to connect to. I'm not sure a personal injury attorney or a, a an IP attorney that doesn't deal with contracts, they'll look at your stuff on LinkedIn feed and be like, okay, all right, she's got a bunch of comments and a bunch of likes. Great for her. But the people that you want to reach will see that and go, holy crap, I thought that same joke last week. It's a different way to build rapport. So I think it is a sneaky genius thing that you differentiate yourself because there's some humor involved. We're not just talking about the normal, dull areas of law that people deal with on, on a day-to-day basis. They actually can laugh at those dull areas. I think that is, that is fantastic and kudos to you to either being strategic or finding out by accident that this is a great way to connect with your target audiences. Yeah. And I think some of it was finding by accident because one of the beautiful things about posting every day is you fail fast. So if I had, you know, and I'd done the calculations before, if I've posted now, let's say about 600 posts in a row, if I had only posted two times a week, that's many years by the time I would have figured some of these things out. And posting every day, it feels overwhelming for people, but I found the habits that you build and the lessons that you learn come much faster. So for example, I started doing cartoons in the very beginning, and then I accidentally did one that had a, not accidentally, I inadvertently added a little couple lines of text that someone said, and immediately everyone's like, that's so awesome. That's such a, that's your best cartoon yet. So I was like, oh, okay. So I started adding cartoons in the mix, but I still did like provision breakdowns with little bubbles of language without a cartoon. And uh, somebody made the comment of, you know, that's great on one of my charts or provisions I'd broken down, but I miss your cartoon. I remember the posts better when there's a cartoon. And I was like, Oh, because I felt bad, like I should be giving them a chart or something more tangible to, t- to help people learn the point. But that person helped me realize, oh, actually, the cartoon helps even more than a chart because it's different. And it's, you know, and it's also just me. I, it was me being who I am, which, as I said, I'm tend towards silliness. So I liked. I was able to really capture the authentic self um, as opposed to trying to play lawyer, Laura, the lawyer, very serious. This is serious stuff, teaching you is serious stuff. And it's making it more fun. Well, if people get to work with you, they will inevitably have conversations with you and they will see the real Laura. You might as well give them a taste up front, right? You might yeah. as well be like the Costco person giving a little sample of that new trail mix or, or whatever, because if they can't laugh at the jokes that you're making, which by the way, in the world of comedy are, are pretty basic jokes, right? We're, yeah. we're not talking controversial jokes here. <laughs> if they can't even laugh at that or or they don't find pleasure in the small things in life that are pleasurable, then heaven help you, Laura, if you have them as a client and they are you know, on your back, up your rear constantly because they are the kind of personality that doesn't laugh at jokes online and thus is really tough to deal with in, in real life. You made a comment that I want to hop on, which is that because you were posting so frequently, you had so many reps, if you will, you were able to test things and you were able to fail quickly. You were able to see what worked and what didn't work. And, and I love that idea that it would have been years of posting twice a week 
to come up with insights and guidance that you saw within a few weeks. So yeah. I think that, that's really profound too. Talk to me about what happened to the end of the 30 days. So you've had your 30 day challenge. What were you seeing from feedback, from comments? And importantly, were you seeing either client relationships develop or at least leads, if you will, develop based on your posts? Yeah. So what I saw was um, people were, my, my community quickly expanded. As I said, I started with 1,300 uh, connections that I'd gained over my 25-year career. And immediately I started getting more and more connections because people wanted to get that in their daily feed. And I started getting people, well, there was two, really two sides of this. One is the content side people who are following me said, do you have a PDF with all the cartoons? I'd love to get a copy of it. And I kept having that come up over and over and over. So I decided to self-publish a book with 97 cartoons or 90. Well, excuse me. They didn't have cartoons at that point, just the tips. So I published a book with just 97 tips and it was a huge hit. And it gave people a chance to kind of get a hold of those tips and read them kind of in, at their own leisure. And so I've grown at the end of that 30 days, I just kept growing and growing, growing to the point where now I'm almost about at 27,000 followers wow. since this started uh, and just all organic. I've never paid for an ad my entire time. So that was on the, the content side. And then um, on the law firm side, I did the analysis because I did start getting a ton of new clients come in. Um, I was averaging I'd say three or four a month of new clients just based on my tips. And these are substantive clients in general, because uh, I tend to specialize in larger, uh, sophisticated commercial contracts. So I tended to get the big companies. And what I did was I did the analysis about six months later, you know, after I'd started posting and all the clients I'd received in the past six months. And at that point, it was 95% for my LinkedIn tips as opposed wow. to the 18 months before where it was 100% referral. So the, in the six months after I started drafting the, or posting the daily tips, uh, that accounted for all of, and I'd say I probably added about 20 clients to my law firm during that time, 100% for my LinkedIn tips. So many things here. One, all of those new clients are new referral sources for you too. So even okay. if you enjoy the referral source kind of gathering of clients more than the clients reaching out to you the first time, like you've opened up your referral network even more. Forget the people on LinkedIn who know you, the people who contracted with you and hired you are now your new refer referral sources. I guess there's a joke in there that it took you six months to do the analysis because you were so busy from the client work <laughs> exactly. that you got from LinkedIn. So that's great. I, I want to pivot to how to contract, but, but I'm hoping you can leave this portion of the conversation, leave us with, with one or two tips about LinkedIn, because I do think that obviously your experience shows that lawyers in niches who aren't at large law firms with million dollar marketing budgets, lawyers like you are, can build a large practice based on LinkedIn and social media. So can you give us a tip or two for us to leave this part of the conversation with about LinkedIn? Yeah. So I think the most important tip is to be yourself and to be conversational. That's the biggest problem I see with lawyers is they write these posts like a law review article or a memo to the partner. That's not what posts should be. This is social media. And so I, I actually, somebody sent me a post saying, hey, you know, can you help me figure out what's going wrong? And 
what I did was change it into a conversation. It was, you know, talking about, because this person was laying out kind of almost like IRAC issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. And my suggestion was to flip that. You got You can't bury the lead. Your first line has to catch people because they're scrolling. So the first line has to be the answer or the point you're trying to make. Put in the first sentence. Don't wait till the end like you're used to doing. So that's a huge part of it is, is and then I say, I write for my 83-year-old grandmother, or I mean, my 83-year-old mother. Um, she's a retired nurse, very smart woman. And so when I, I'm not sure how to write, I try to explain something to her. And that keeps it at a conversational tone that is approachable by people. And then I just write like me, and I write like I talk. And I'd encourage people to do that. Stay away from that formal stiff writing we tend to do as lawyers and write to a friend, a co- you know, a family member. It makes it, it forces you to keep it more uh, plain English and conversational. I, I think these tips are great. And at the same time, they're very basic, right? No, nothing personal, but this is not exactly go meditate at a silent retreat for five weeks to discover your inner self and then post on LinkedIn. It is think about your target audience and communicate to them clearly so your message can get to them and be received by them without noise that you create by using, again, legal jargon or just too many words to convey something that can be conveyed in, in a fraction of that. Let's talk about how to contract because not only are you winning the LinkedIn game, but you've decided to, again, as I mentioned earlier in in the episode, develop your how to contract service. It's a product. I I consider it uh, content as a service, but it really is like a productized service. So tell me a little bit about how to contract, what it is, and what was the genesis for the idea. Yeah. So it really started, I I had always wanted to do contract training and had the idea that, you know, somehow I'd help people, I'd work, get engaged with a law firm and do some, you know, coaching of individual lawyers. But it was very um, vague and imprecise. It wasn't a clear business plan. And so that was even when I started posting all the time. I was really just focused on building my law firm. But what I found was that um, vacuum I was filling where people, I people had the same experience I had, which I spent my whole career looking for someone to give me answers on contracts. You know, don't give me law review articles. What am I supposed to do when I'm in the middle of a negotiation and they want gross negligence and I only want negligence and when should I give that up and when shouldn't I? And, you know, how should I think about these things? And so nobody was talking about that stuff. And so I think people really wanted more. And so after the I published the book, people kept asking for more. They wanted, are you going to do an in-person training? When are you going to, you know, coming to me looking for more? So that's where I decided, you know, I really should create, I was going to create a course. And I thought, no, really, I want a membership because I want a community of people that is helping each other, that is showing each other, you know, it's not just my feedback. It's all these other people weighing in, just like on my posts. I put the post up, but really it's a community of discussion in the, in the comments. And so I wanted to recreate that with uh, online through how to contract and create a community where, yes, I put out the points, but everybody kind of chimes in. So I launched the membership in uh, March last year with the idea of delivering ongoing like checklists. I've created negotiation scripts. I created uh, 
videos, teaching core concepts and sophisticated concepts. So I created this, it's essentially a content membership where each week everyone gets something um, and have had that the last year and then added to that people wanted to come together because again this is very community based so I said okay well I'll have a conference and it'll just basically be like my friends contract nerd friends and me get some tacos get some margaritas and we'll let everybody else come to the party too where we talk about contracts and so of course with COVID it turned out to be virtual only instead of the in-person party I'd hoped for but it was still a great success. And we had 354 tickets sold and just a tremendous uh, discussion about practical issues. I had brought in 14 experts to speak about contract things. So it's kind of blown up. And now this year where I've got courses coming, one that's really teaching lawyers what it, what you need to know if you're in-house working with commercial contracts, sort of how do you work with supply chain? What's the difference between a PO and a quote? You know, when should you uh, go to your litigation person and when do you just work with and handle this? So it was teaching a lot about that. And then we're starting some new um, events. We're doing a workshop coming up on cloud services contracts. We're doing another on procurement. So we're really trying to create this platform where people can come and learn the the real world approach to contracts. I think it's fascinating that you found an audience that people would say, oh boy, who's going to care about contracts? What a niche audience. Everything that's been written about contracts is already out there. Go purchase services from a new legal technology company that focuses on contracts or go read Alexis or Westlaw treatise on contracts. And yet, you had 300 plus tickets sold. You had what, 14, more than a dozen experts, right? Not just Laura, but a dozen more experts on contract law. You had people interested. You have people subscribing to how to contract. You still have clients coming to you. I think it's fascinating that you found an audience that wants more. They were clamoring for more. That is the ultimate content audience fit, again, the equivalent of the product market fit for technology. When we're talking about content marketing, thought leadership marketing, it's content audience fit. And here you are, you have an audience, you're providing them content and, and they want more, right? It's like the, they're banging down your door to give them more. That is validation of your idea. And that to me is just such a great way to show that the hard work that you put in the thought you, you've put into this process is paying off. And look, you said it yourself, you failed before with your LinkedIn post. And I'm sure there are things that you tried at your firm, either the, the current firm or even the service had a contract that didn't work out the way you thought. But overall, to look at where you were before jumping into LinkedIn, and who knows what paths your life may have gone down. But it's amazing to think that with just 30 days, 30 days of LinkedIn posting, you have grown these two businesses you're unquestionably a leader in the legal industry in contracts. And it just started with having the discipline and the desire to sit down and start typing at your computer once a day for 30 days. So I think that's, that's a fantastic testament to, to your hard work. I am curious if you see potential for more how to contracts and those types of businesses for lawyers across the industry and across practice groups because to me that's the holy grail of being able to to capture your knowledge and wisdom in a product 
or service, how you want to call it, but you don't have to keep saying the same things to the same people because you said it once in that webinar or that series of videos or that internal podcast. So I'm curious if you look into your crystal ball, if you see how to contract that kind of service being possible for other lawyers who currently have what we would think are traditional big law or boutique law practices. Definitely. It's there's such a focus and a shift in our society even from focusing just on education once and done you went to university you're good to ongoing life skill development and so i think if our the lawyers in firms focus more on how can i help the clients i want to serve not just as their engaged attorney as their as their lawyer and they're the client but how, what do they need to know? What can I help them do that I know how to do? And so the biggest thing that's so important for everybody who has a niche is figure out what your clients need. And again, not just your many hundreds per hour billable service, but my clients are in-house counsel. They need to know and feel more comfortable working with the contracts that are on their desk that day. And so that's always my focus is that generosity. So anybody who's looking to fill a niche, focus in on your target clients and then focus in on what do they really need? What information do they need? What guidance, what advice? And then give them that. It should never be about what you want to write, what you think is good. It really should focus on what does your client potential customer need from you and focus on giving them that. And I think the the generosity breeds generosity and that abundance mindset, it, it pays off so much. That, that's great advice. I mean, that's great advice for how to contract type business and really just generally running your law firm is put the client first because when you do that, funny things happen you begin to develop a practice that looks more like what your clients want. And assuming that you want to continue that kind of practice, then you have something you can build on. And likewise, if the clients tell you something and you don't want to go that route, well, that's telling you you're probably not looking at the right clients or you're not attracting the right clients. And obviously the right clients help you attract the right people because if those clients are profitable and they treat your people well, your people are going to want to be there and help grow your firm as opposed to clients who are not great, not pleasant, and make your employees' lives living hell, they're not going to stick around. You hear sometimes, put your employees first. When we're talking about a professional services firm, I think you do want to put your employees first, but if you look at the practice overall and look at the product overall, the, the clients are what drive the revenue, they drive the scalability, and sometimes it's frustrating because we have to lean on those clients, but they're the ones that are going to help you either get to where you want to go with them or tell you, actually, this is not the place I want to be and allow you to pivot quickly to be where you want to go. Laura, I appreciate your time here today. You've given us a ton of tips about LinkedIn and about productized services for law firms. Can you please give us an idea of where to reach you at LinkedIn, through your website, give us all the details and I'll make sure we put those in the show notes as well. Sure. Yeah. The easiest way to get hold of me is through my LinkedIn profile. I message with people all the time through that. So you can send me a direct message and connect with me. I accept almost all connections from everybody. And uh, so that's one way. The other way is you can reach me at Laura at how to contract dot com. Uh, so that's another way. And I'm on all the different social media platforms as well. But those either the email or LinkedIn are probably the best ways to get in touch. Is your book still available for purchase or download? 
Yeah, so the book is still available on Amazon. It's called uh, Practical Tips for How to Contract. And I'm coming out with a second edition in September or October with all my tips and all the cartoons, which right now I ha- I'll have about 400 when I uh, publish that book. That's incredible. And, and, and these are, are these both self-published books? Yes, yes, yeah. through yeah, which I love Amazon self-publishing. I talked to a publisher about doing it that way, but I would lose a lot of control on pricing, and it would take a year to a year and a half. And I was like, yeah, I'd rather just self-publish. Yeah, well, that the whole self-publish conversation is a different conversation we'll have to <laughs> have at some other time. Laura, again, thanks so much for your guidance and your insights, and best of luck with the firm, and best of luck with how to contract. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com, hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.